Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil 
which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. As a student of the Word, the Bible, God's Holy Word, you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Um, they are together, one unit. When we look at Jesus' death and resurrection, it seems strange, at least at first sight, if you're not familiar with the biblical story of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, you may not understand why does or how does one man's death atone for my own sin? How is that even possible? Why is that necessary? Well, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this beautiful tapestry woven together over 1,500 years span of time by over 40 different authors and over three different continents. This beautiful story of love, of hope, of sacrifice, and most importantly, of redemption. We are a people who speak of the love of God and his power to redeem his people. Today, our sermon is entitled, The Altar. And you notice through the imagery, through the Bible Project video I just showed you, and as we've been going through our Bible reading plan this year with the Bible Project, you may have already watched this video. But as you saw in that video, you see this altar. Why is the altar significant in the Old Testament? Why was the death of an animal significant in the Old Testament? Why was that even necessary? And then flash forward to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, the Gospels, if you will. Why was one man's death necessary to eradicate this problem, this plague, this virus called sin and death? We're going to be reading from the Old Testament book Ezra today, and if you've been reading along with us this year and this theme of love, and uh, last year was love, this year joy, and again, I can't say that without chuckling a little bit because how ironic and interesting that when we plan to do something uh, that we feel God is leading us to, he oftentimes throws us a little bit of a curveball and says, well, let me test and see whether your joy is true or not. This has been a difficult year for many of us, hasn't it? Not only the pandemic and racial tensions, but some of you have had personal issues in your own life. Some of you have personal issues that no one even closest to you knows about, that you struggled with. So this theme of joy, you may even scoff at and think, yeah, how can I have joy amidst all of the trials, tribulations, difficulties of life? See, joy, let me just give you a brief little inlet into the conversation today. Joy is not something that is an emotion. Joy, joy is, is, is an action. It's a production of something that we should have in our lives as believers in Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, or you're not a, uh, a Christian, if you will, you may not even understand the production of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What we call the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 
that should be produced in our lives as believers in Christ? Have you met Christians that do not produce that kind of fruit? See, the question is, how deep do the roots of faith go in a person who doesn't produce that kind of fruit? We've been talking about this aspect of joy. And when we talk about an altar today, it's kind of a question mark. How is an altar a symbol of joy? Well, we're going to look in Ezra, and I'll give you a chance to turn there. It'll be on the screen in a moment. Ezra chapter 3. One of the first things the people of Israel did when they were allowed to come back into the land, into Jerusalem, one of the very first things they, were, they did, they didn't build houses. They didn't build uh, the temple yet. They didn't build the walls around Jerusalem. They didn't build government centers or social service centers. You know the first thing they built when they came back? The altar. I found that so significant as I was studying for this sermon. They didn't go and do all of this other stuff. You might think, well, why would they build a slab to sacrifice more animals on? Wouldn't it be more important to build some of these, in, these structures that, that we think would be more important? Why would they build an altar? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So what is an altar? You, you heard from the video a little bit about what the altar is. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Daniel Webster's dictionary, the 1800 uh, version. Uh, the, it goes like this. He says, it's a mount or a table or an elevated place on which sacrifices were anciently offered to some deity. So Christianity, or not Christianity, uh, Judaism is not the only religion that offered animal sacrifice. As a matter of fact, many of the other pagan nations around the Israelites, even when they were a nation, offered sacrifices of animals, but they also offered human sacrifice. God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Never required human sacrifice. That was a huge distinctive between the God of Israel and the so-called gods of other pagan nations because life to God is significant. Human life to God is valuable. The altar of God, as we'll talk about today, is a place of worship. I want you to write that in your notes if it's not already there. God's altar is a place of worship. God's altar is a place of worship. It's a place of atonement for sin. In the Old Testament, when, when the Jews would come together for different festivals, like the Passover, they would, they would sacrifice lambs. What, for what purpose? So that the shedding of the blood of this one animal would, would, would atone for the sins of the people in that household. The shedding of life. A life for a life, an eye for an eye. Have you ever heard of that in the Old Testament before? So what did the sacrifice do? That life of an animal. When was the first sacrifice in the Bible? First death, do you know? Genesis chapter 4, 3 and 4. And who was the sacrifice made by? The very first sacrifice or animal death was made by God. Because how did Adam and Eve leave the garden? Naked and afraid? It sounds like a TV show. <laughs> and now they left with animal skins on their back as a covering to go into the wilderness. So God provided them with the covering of his grace, his mercy, but it required the death of an animal. Now flash forward thousands of years, and we get to Jesus. And you read the book of Hebrews, and what does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews tells us that he is the once and for all sacrifice, Jesus, that abolished the sacrificial system. There was no other life that was capable of eradicating the problem of sin and death but his life and his life alone. So the very God who caused the very first sacrifice of an animal to provide coverings for Adam and Eve gave the final sacrifice as well of himself. Is that not powerful? Well, let's read Ezra chapter 3, starting with verse 1. We're only going to read six verses this morning. 
In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Now keep in mind, they had been dispersed throughout the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom had then been taken over by the Medo-Persian kingdom under King Cyrus or Emperor Cyrus. Cyrus, who was a compassionate and benevolent leader under the, uh, the, the movement of God on his own life, was moved to allow the Israelites to begin to inhabit the land that they had been dispersed from to begin with. So the Israelites in large droves began coming back into Jerusalem, into the old area, what would have been considered Judah, and they began inhabiting the land again. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of she- she- oh, I gotta be careful how I say that, Shealtiel, with his family and rebuilding the altar of God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed by the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its own site, old site. Now, there were people still inhabiting the land. Not everybody got exiled. And the Babylonians and the Persians that now had come and begun to inhabit the land, um, the Israelites are coming back into land, through the land now 70 years later. Imagine, 70 years of time have elapsed. You have people that are living in the land now, maybe in some of the old homesteads that you used to live in. And They're coming back in and taking the land back again. Needless to say, they come in sheepishly, not haughty, not arrogant, because they had been humbled by the judgment and the punishment and the discipline of God by being exiled under the Babylonian government. And so they're not going to come back in saying, get out of my house, get out of my land. What are they going to do? They're coming in sheepishly. But they've got an edict by Cyrus to come back into the land. So they come back into the land and they begin to acquire certain things. And instead of pushing people out, the first thing they do is they build the altar of God again. Because if there's nothing else they've learned in 70 years of exile, it's that we don't want to repeat the same mistakes that our ancestors did. We don't want to repeat the same mistakes we saw happen that got us in this situation in the first place. So let's build an altar because we need to worship God again in the place that we once did, at the old site where the altar used to stand. Let's go back there and let's reestablish worship again. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar on its old site. And then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening. What's a burnt sacrifice? Some of you may not know the difference between a burnt sacrifice or a showbread sacrifice or multiple. A burnt sacrifice is literally what it means. It's where you take the whole offering, the whole sacrifice, and you lay it on the altar to be burnt completely to nothing. It's basically a cremation is what it is. There are many sacrifices, however, that were done in the Jewish context where there were choice pieces of meat cut off from the sacrifices. They would be boiled until all the fat was off, and then the priests would be allowed to stick a fork in it. It's done. Stick a fork in it. It's done. They'd be allowed to stick a long fork in there, pull out a piece of meat, and that was for them to eat. See, the priests and the Levites, they, they were given an apportionment because they weren't allowed to own land or uh, those kind of things. Their sole job and duty was to be a priest for the people, to do the sacrifices, to do all of that. So how were they to eat? How were they to live? Much like the pastors in our day and age, I know there, there's this thing going on, well, we don't need to, pastors could work another job. Yes, we could. And there are many bivocational pastors out there. But pastors today are very similar in nature in that we don't offer sacrifices on your behalf, but we teach the word. We keep the gospel presentation before you. We try to help in leading this charge uh, to be the church in the community. There's a place for pastors, teachers, prophets, evangelists within the context of the community of faith today. But I'm digressing. Let me get back on track. So the priests 
would offer these sacrifices, and a burnt sacrifice was a complete and utter cremation of the sacrifice itself. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law. If you go to the book of Leviticus, you go toward the end of the book of Leviticus, you'll read all of these different festivals they were supposed to partake in. You know what's interesting? You don't see anything about a vacation in the Old Testament, do you? You do see something about a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest was Saturday for the Jewish people, uh, and they would actually literally take the whole day off. When was the last time you had a whole day off? I mean, quarantine? Some of you have, but when I, okay, let me back up, because quarantine, I know you guys didn't just sit and do nothing. I, I hope you did. A Sabbath rest is meant to be do nothing day. Except read the word, praise God, and keep your focus on him. That's what the Jewish Sabbath was. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It was one of the Ten Commandments. When was the last time you actually took a whole day to do nothing? Not mow your grass, not sweep your porch. Seriously. See, the Sabbath was made so that we could have a break and have an opportunity to focus on God. I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm, again, digressing again, but let's be honest. Have we neglected to do that in our own lives? Me included. I've had people tell me, I've seen you working on Sunday, Brian. I saw you mow your grass. This has happened. I drove, somebody drove by your house. They saw you mowing your grass on Sunday. I said, well, when, guess, what, guess what day I work? Pastors work on Sunday, yes? Or at least an hour on Sunday, or ish. I take Fridays as my Sabbath. Do I do it as diligently as I should? No, I'm going to be honest with you. It's, it's a hard thing to do because I want to stay active. The problem is our culture has driven us to the point where we think we have to have every minute of every day encapsulated with some kind of activity. But I think it's important to get back to rest. So what did they do? Instead of taking, you know, your employer might have given you a vacation, but there was already commanded in the law of God these multiple festivals that would happen throughout the year. They would last seven days or up to 14 days. The festival of shelters was one of them. And the festival of shelters would be when everybody would bring their tent into town and build a shelter, literally, and they would all camp out. And they would have a festival. They would eat and drink and be merry, not for tomorrow they die, but it was commanded of them to come together as the body of believers in this holy God to celebrate God together as a corporate body, to worship him, to offer sacrifices to him. It was a mandate that they do this. How often do we do that as the body of Christ? How often do we take time to come together and celebrate? Well, we do it every Sunday. Yes, but not the way they did. Not that I'm saying we should go back to what they did, but when was the last time you got together as a group of believers and just celebrated and loved one another and loved God as you loved one another? They celebrated the Feast of Shelters as, they, as was prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings as specified each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings required for the new moon celebrations. New moon, it sounds really paganish, but it's not. Look in Leviticus toward the end of the book. Read about the different festivals and the significance of those festivals. Annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. They also gave... Voluntary offerings to the Lord. So there were required offerings, but they also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord as well, out of the goodness of their own hearts. Fifteen days before the festival of shelters began, the priest had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Okay, Key point this morning, I said this last week, is God can change the heart of kings. And we talked about the providence of God and how God can move on people you might not think he can move on. But God can also do something else. What can he do? He can change the heart of his own people. That should be a 
pretty no-brainer idea, right? But sometimes God's people are the most stubborn people. Yes! (laughs) Julie, it is true. God's people are sometimes the most stubborn people. Trust me, as a pastor, I've run into that a time or two. And they will say that they've run into me. I've been stubborn. My wife could tell you I'm one of the most stubborn people there are. But uh, being a people pleaser and being stubborn doesn't always go together. It's somewhat not good in the same person. So needless to say, as you, let me digress for a minute. So here's the thing. I, uh, I was one of the face mask mandate uh, avoiders for the longest time. I'm like, I will, I, I will not be moved. And then God started to work on my heart, not because it's right or wrong, but because my pride started getting in the way of me wearing a face mask. And so it was a spiritual issue for me. Not wearing a face mask is spiritual, but the pride issue was spiritual for me. So whether you wear one or not, is up to you, and it's between you, God, and I guess the governor at this point. The truth of the matter is, you're welcome in this place, because this should not be a divisive issue for the body of Christ. As I mentioned, and again, I told, I've told somebody I wouldn't bring this up again, but I'm bringing it up, so sue me, right? Uh, <laughs> the real issue is this. You're not going to hell if you wear a mask. You're not going to hell if you don't wear a mask. There are bigger fish to fry. There are bigger issues the church of God will have to face as we move forward that are hills worth dying on and battles worth fighting. The Jewish people knew that too when they came back into the land. Their priorities were in order. They knew what it was like to... uh, offer sacrifices to pagan gods that really never existed. They knew what it was like to have idolatry in their lives. And what is idolatry? It's simply put this way. Idolatry is anything that you put in place of honor above God. That's what it is. Anything you put in place of honor above God in your life is idolatry. It could be money, it could be success, it could be your job, your kids, your spouse. Anything you put in the place of honor above God in your life is your God or your idol. And they came back into the land and they didn't want to do that same thing again. So instead of being idolatrous people, they wanted to be people of God. They got a clean slate. They wanted to start over. And the first thing they started with was rebuilding the altar. Even before the first foundation stone of the temple was put in place, they built the altar as a place of sacrifice. The late Archbishop of Canterbury, by the name of William Temple, writes this, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind by his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, In all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Self-centeredness, selfishness is the root of all sinful behavior. To have something for yourself that you don't have, that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And if that desire is anything other than God, then it ultimately leads to sin, even if it's a good thing. With this in mind, how is God able to change the heart of his people? The first thing is that God's punishment along with his blessings can lead to a realignment with his purposes. Let me say that again. That's a mouthful. God's punishment along with his blessings can lead to realignment with his purposes. We've already seen this. They had been punished as a people. They had had their land taken from them. They had been dispersed throughout the Babylonian kingdom. And now 70 years later, after the Medo-Persian kingdom has taken over and the emperor by the name of Cyrus has come into power, he begins to allow them to come back. When we are punished by God or disciplined by God for doing so. We call this consequences of sin. How does God punish today? Think about it this way. When was the last time you did something wrong and had to suffer the consequences for it? 
See, the consequences of your wrongdoing, your bad deeds, oftentimes comes hitting you upside the head. Or sometimes it's not by any fault of your own. You encounter trials, tribulations, and persecutions that come not as a result of something you've done, but as a result of something somebody's done against you. We are foolish to think that those things can't happen when we become believers in Christ. As a matter of fact, and you hear me say this often, when something bad happens to me, is God to blame? It's a good question, because I hear that often. Pastor, why is God allowing these bad things to happen to me? The question is this, what did God do to fix the bad things once and for all in your life. When you come to Christ, he's not giving you a get out of jail free card. He's getting you a get out of hell free card. <laughs> I like that. that. That just came off the top of my head. I thought you, that's for you. Uh, it is to save you from hell. It's to give you everlasting life. To live in a place after this blip on a radar we call life. It's to give us hope beyond this life. See, this life is not easy, is it? How many of you would say it's really easy? And that every moment of every day of your life, it has been pretty awesome and it's never had any conflict, difficulty, or challenge. See, most of us can't say that. And if you're raising your hand, I don't believe you. We have challenges in this life. The only way to get through those challenges is to know there's something beyond this life. And to know there's something beyond this life that's worth living for in this life, regardless of what this life throws at us. Because there is a Savior who atoned for our sins on a final altar we call the cross to give us hope beyond the grave because he too himself conquered the grave. So he, being the once and for all sacrifice, took our punishment, gave us his blessings, and shows us his purposes that only through him can we have everlasting life. He, the way, the truth, and the life, nobody else can come to the Father except through him. As that one all-time sacrifice. The second thing this morning is this. A realignment with God's purposes requires submission to God's prescriptions. Let me read the first point again. I'll read the second point. God's punishment along with his blessings can lead to realignment with his purposes because God's punishment and discipline should get us alerted to the fact that we need to wake up and put our eyes back on God. United States, wake up. America, wake up. God is using tools, not of the enemy, but he's using the tools that are happening today to wake his church up. Because if we don't wake up, guess what's going to happen? Those who don't not, do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Have you heard that term before? Even if you go no other place but the Bible, and you read from Genesis to Revelation, even in the New Testament, how many times did Paul, who wrote most in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, every one of his letters are correcting bad behavior in God's people's fellowship? Corinthians is one of the worst. I'd love to preach through that someday, but you'd have to, you'd, you'd have to brace because it's really a hard-hitting book. It like sucks the life out of you because he's like, you're, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, uh, you're probably going to go to hell for that, and you're doing this wrong, and you're doing that wrong. I mean, it's really how it works. Read through first and second, and then, well, actually, second Corinthians, it's like, you know, in my first letter I sent you, I was pretty harsh. Let me soften this one up a bit. Seriously, that's how it works out. But 
from the Old to the New Testament, there's a punishment and a discipline that God pours out on his people for the purpose of redirecting their attention on him. It doesn't always work that way, though, because there are stubborn people that will never turn their hearts to God and will continue to curse God till their dying breath. But is it that God wants that for them? No! He doesn't want anyone to perish but all to receive eternal life. But he can't force you to do that. He cannot force you to do that. He can change the heart of his people. That's the operative word. Did you notice that in the key point? God can change the heart of his people. It doesn't say God will change the heart of his people. Why? Because you can reject it to your dying breath. You can reject God and the sacrifice of Christ Jesus to the point that you breathe your last in complete stubbornness and hardness of heart. That you lose it all. Because you've tried to hang on to your life. You ultimately will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you gain it and more in return. What does it profit you? to gain the whole world and lose your soul because ultimately we all will die physically. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But we don't like to think about it, especially when we're younger. I just had one of my close friends from Ohio die, 43 years old. Got the news last week. They had a celebration of life yesterday. He was in Wyoming with his two teenage sons. Weekend away. They were hiking through the mountains. They were a couple miles off the beaten path. And Josh, is his name, sits down because he's not feeling well. The next thing they know, he's fallen over. His two sons begin CPR on him. And for an hour, they're doing CPR. People from the trail that have been hiking along the trail come. They're giving the boys water. They're trying to do whatever they can. They're so far off the beaten path, they have to take a helicopter to take his body out. By the time they got there, they took his body out in a body bag. And these two teenage boys watching their dad, whom they tried to save the life of, fly away in a helicopter. And they have to track back down the, back down the trail alone to get back to some form of civilization, traumatized. What do I tell you that? It's been something my wife and I struggled with. These were our family. Uh, it was a family we got really close to when we were in Ohio, senior pastors there. We'd worked with them on multiple occasions. It, it, it's so surreal that he passed away. He was just posting pictures on Facebook like hours before that moment. You could see them fishing, hiking, taking pictures of all the wildlife. I say that because here's the truth of the matter. You don't, you don't know what moment you have left. We all will die eventually. Our days are numbered, every single one of us. You may live to be 90, 100, above 100 years old. I'm not trying to scare you. This is, please understand, this is not a scare tactic. Those of you listening at home, this is not a scare tactic. It's a reality. And we don't talk about this reality often enough. Yes, it is a drag to talk about death, but you can't talk about life without talking about death. Because death is a reality to living a life in this broken and fallen world. And if your life is not ready to die, then why are you, what are you holding back for? Well, I just don't, I have a lot of doubts. I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I don't know if I believe in all this Bible stuff. Well, I'm telling you what, no matter what you believe, you believe something. Maybe it's just in yourself. But yourself is not going to get you to heaven. Yourself is not going to give you everlasting life. The only thing that you can do in that endeavor is to bow on your knees humbly before God and surrender everything to him. You see, this is what the Israelites knew when they came back after 70 years of punishment and they're now allowed to come back. The first thing they do is not build a cushy, comfortable house to live in. It's, they don't build a temple or a church building. 
They build an altar as a place of worship because they realized what was most important in life is their relationship with God. Because they had seen people in their lives slaughtered by the enemy, literally. They knew of the devastation that comes by being disobedient to God and going your own way. And yet they decided, we don't want to do that anymore. Is it going to take a generation in our culture today passing away because of punishment before the next or two generations from now wake up? I hope not. I hope not. Because realignment with God's purposes requires submission to God's prescriptions. I think it's interesting that the New Living Translation that I read from every Sunday has the word as prescribed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The law of Moses specifically you can read about in the book of Leviticus, you can read about in Exodus, where you have the Ten Commandments, and you can also read about, it's kind of a, a recap in the book of Deuteronomy. What are prescriptions? Have you ever gotten a prescription before? You ever gone to the doctor and you got this pain or you're having this issue, uh, you, you, you're struggling with any different number of maladies, and what does the doctor do? Well, I'm going to prescribe you any number of things. The prescription's only as good as you taking it, right? Yes? Okay. If you were to go home with the prescription, you've picked it up from the drugstore, and you put it on the shelf, and you don't take it as, pres as prescribed, not more than you need to, not less than you need to, but as prescribed, if you just put it on the shelf, and you don't take it as prescribed, and you're not getting better, are you going to go back to your doctor and say, it's your fault, I'm not getting better. I came to you, and, 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 and you gave me a prescription. Well, have you taken the prescription? No. <laughs> that's my fault. You see, the, the Old Testament gives us prescriptions. The Old Testament people did not take the prescription seriously. You, you see this cycle of behavior. They go through this cycle of behavior. What do they do? I know God's prescribed us some really cool stuff, uh, but I want to go commit adultery. All right? I mean, it's one of the ten. Or I, I just want to go murder somebody. That's called a serial killer, and it's not prescribed in the Bible. No! You don't do that. You don't covet your neighbor's donkey, or in the Old Testament, they call it an ass, right? And I can do that because it's King James Version. <laughs> you don't do any of that. But what did they end up doing? They broke every one of them. They actually began to worship pagan gods, and the pagan gods would prescribe prostitution. Did you know that? The pagan gods would prescribe infant sacrifice to the god of Molech, which was this bull head with a human body that was sitting on a throne with its arms stretched out. You may have heard me say this before. I'm not joking. There would be a fire burning between his legs, and they would lay the babies across the arms of this bull. That's what the god of Molech would do. And these people would sacrifice their own children, human sacrifice. The only world religion that didn't prescribe world, uh, human sacrifice was the worship of Yahweh. You read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, where Jeremiah and the prophet Isaiah are both talking to the people on behalf of God, and they said, we never asked you to sacrifice your babies on the altar. It never crossed our mind. It never crossed my mind, God says. What do we do? Now that seems so far-fetched. Do we do anything like any of that today in our culture? 
Now, because we're so scientifically minded, we would never get caught up in pagan worship or godless worship, Yahweh-less worship. So we, we, don't, we don't give in to prostitution or pornography in our culture. We don't give in to sexual immorality or sexual sins, right? Because of our own desire for lust and pleasure. Or do we? Yeah, we may not have a temple that we go to, but doesn't that happen in our culture? Pornography is so accessible today, and pornography is just a taste of a drug that leads you into deeper access to other kinds of drugs, if you will, that are sexual in nature. Statistically, the majority of people have viewed pornography or continue to view it on a regular basis, even within the church. That means you within the sound of my voice, whether online or here. Even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already, Jesus says. They would also, in these pagan temples, sometimes they would, they would uh, do incantations because they would want to bring harm on another person enemy of theirs. So you could go pay a priest, offer some kind of sacrifice, and they would do some weird incantation. you go to an oracle, and you would hope that they would give you the oracle you wanted to hear, and if you paid enough money, you could get, you could get the right saying from the oracle, who would be drugged out on some psychedelic drug back in the day. That's how they would see these visions. Not unlike uh, some of the native tribes in different cultures today with the shamans, they go into a trance and hallucinate. See, God never had his prophets go into hallucination. They were in full presence, body and mind. They weren't taken over in some trance by God or the Holy Spirit. They listened to the voice of God. They spoke on his behalf, and they had a choice in the matter of whether or not to speak God's truth. And you could see them wrestling with that. Jeremiah wrestled with that. Isaiah wrestled with that. It wasn't that they went into some kind of altered state. They spoke the truth of God in obedience to God because if they didn't, they would be held accountable. I have so many people get frustrated with me about, as we've had people leave this church in my eight years, we just celebrated eight years, August the 1st. We've had two more years, we'll go up, woohoo, okay? Um, in eight years of being here, I've had people leave this church, and the reason is because they don't like what I say. I don't like what I say half the time. My kids don't, you could ask them, my wife doesn't, but is what I'm saying true or not? I've always challenged you, test me. If I'm wrong, I'll make the correction. But I promise you, I look and I pour over the word of God. I, I will lay out at least five commentaries on my desk every week to make sure that it's not just Brandon's opinion on a passage. There are times I will pull out even more commentaries because I'm like, I don't like what that says. Why do I get frustrated? I get frustrated because if I'm truly going to be a prophet or a preacher of God to God's people, then I have to be faithful to every word that it says, not just the ones that I like. And so when I'm preaching through it, if you don't like what I say and you leave, I apologize. No, I don't apologize. But let me say this. If you want to go to somebody that's just going to tickle your ears, be careful. You need to be a student of the word as much as the pastor who stands on stage is a student of the word so that they aren't filling you a line of goods that you can't check against God's word. We have so many people going astray in our churches today because not only are they not following the prescriptions of God, they're following the prescriptions of a pastor who may not be following the prescriptions of God. And I won't speak against God's anointed. I'm not going to call out other pastors from this pulpit because that's between them and God. But you study to show yourselves approved because you're not going to get to heaven someday. Well, I did what I was told by this pastor. And they're going to say, no, 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 no. I never knew you. I, I didn't even know the pastor you sat under either. Or I knew the pastor, but I didn't know you. 
It is going to be on me on how I handled the word of God before you guys. Before the people in Dayton, Ohio, where we came from. Before the people in Lakeland, Florida, where I came from prior to that. I will have to stand and give account of every word I've given. As much as you will. You know the passage that haunts me the most, and this isn't in my notes today, but it's this one. Matthew 7. I did about three-ish years ago about 17 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. It's five chapters in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in Matthew 7, toward the end of chapter 7, Jesus says, there are going to be people who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do these mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all of this in your name? And he says, and I will look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you can I set aside for a second? Do you know why that haunts me? Not because I'm not assured of my relationship with Christ, but because people who also sit in my position have a stricter judgment. James tells us that in James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be judged more strictly. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing with the truth that is being given to you. I hope you're checking it to make sure it's truth. I tell you that. Call me out on it. If you don't like what I say, then let's talk before you leave at least. Tell me why you don't like what I say. Is it the tone? Is it the way I say it? Is it my facial expressions? It's not because you're hurting my feelings when you leave, but let's have an honest come to Jesus moment where we can say, if what I'm saying is not true, then I need to change it. But let's have that conversation. Don't let fear drive you to leave because you don't want to talk about what bothers you. As the body of Christ, if we're always leaving when something bothers us, where will you ultimately end up? Because I promise you, there's going to be every pastor on the face of the earth that's going to say something you're not going to like. They may say it in a way you don't like it. They may say it with a flair that you don't like or in a monotone language you don't like. Let me close with this. Jesus said... Don't misunderstand why I've come. Don't misunderstand why I've come. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, Matthew chapter 5, or the writings of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. I didn't come to wipe those out, nor the prophets. The prophets are the rest of the writings, a lot more of the writings of the Old Testament. Okay, I didn't come to abolish those. What does abolish mean? Get rid of to completely write out of existence. I didn't come to get rid of them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth dis when? Until heaven and earth disappear. When is that? That's at the second coming of Jesus, not at the first coming, okay? Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He, the only perfect person, could actually say that I've, I've been able to hold all ten commandments perfectly. The other 613 that kind of are derivations of them in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I, I've done all of those. I've done them perfectly. I've never lusted after anybody. I've never hated anybody in my heart. I've never done any of that stuff. He is the only one who could say that. Thus, he fulfilled them perfectly. And because of his fulfillment of them perfectly, he was then in the right place. Not just as God, but also as a human, having fulfilled them perfectly to be sacrificed once and for all in the atonement of all sin. 
And now he's done everything. He's pulled out all the stops. He has stepped a million steps in your direction, and he, accept, he expects you to step one step in his direction through belief. When I hear people get on this rant about Jesus and about God and how he's not really done anything for me, I say he has done everything for you. The problem is you're not willing to do anything for yourself in a way that makes eternal significance. You can bicker and complain about God until you're dead or you can surrender to God and find a way through this tumultuous life which is downtrodden, frustrating, and, and, and it just leads to all of this anxiety. But you can begin to see beyond the political realm. You can begin to see beyond the physical ailments in the physical realm because you have something of eternal significance that can save you from all of this mess. Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice. I'm going to call our worship team forward to begin to close this out. And, and I want to close with this. A story by, uh, about a guy by the name of Billy Bray. 1823, at the age of 29, he accepted Jesus Christ. He lived a life of drunkenness before his salvation, but he became such an outgoing witness for Christ and he gave his testimony for God that he became known as God's glad man. One time he was digging potatoes from his garden and he felt the devil oppressing him. I don't know if you felt the weight of oppression on your life, but he was doing this. He was digging potatoes, felt an oppressive weight from the devil on him. And it seemed to him that the devil said, Billy Bray, God doesn't love you. If he did, he wouldn't give you such puny potatoes and so few. But Billy Bray didn't listen to the devil's temptation. He talked back to him. He said, I served you long and true, devil, and no better servant could a master ever have than I was to you. But when I served you, you didn't give me any potatoes. When I served you, you didn't give me anything for my good efforts. See, Billy Bray reminded himself that the burden he had been, that he had in serving Christ was lighter than the one he had in serving the devil. The yoke that he wore in partnership with and submission to Jesus was easier than the yoke he wore as one of the devil's disciples. Billy Bray once said, I'd rather be in hell with Jesus than in heaven without him. For hell with Jesus would seem like heaven to me, and heaven without Jesus would seem like hell. I don't know where you are today. We talked about the altar of God. We talked about the sacrifice of God through Jesus Christ. We have altars up front here. And I know they seem antiquated and outdated. Many churches have actually taken the altars out. Call me old-fashioned if you want to. We've kept them, not just as a piece of furniture or some kind of uh, tradition, but rather as a place of personal sacrifice. I've said you don't, you don't have to get saved by coming forward to these pews or to these uh, altars. You can get saved in your pew just as you could out in nature or anywhere else by surrendering your life to Christ. There's something, though, about humbling yourself the way the Israelites did when they came back in. And the first thing they did was build an altar to worship God. They weren't too prideful to step out. They weren't too embarrassed to step out. They were nervous because of the people around them, but they did press through in spite of their own anxieties. I've said in the past several weeks, if you have a burden you've been carrying, if you've got doubts that you want to let God have hold of, if you need salvation, you need redemption, you need hope, you need forgiveness, you want to rededicate your life, if you want to pray for somebody in your life that doesn't know Christ, you come to my right, your left, and you're telling people at this side that you want somebody to come pray with you. This is a non-social distancing altar, okay? We have a prayer team that will come pray with you. 
But if you want to come and you want to distance and you don't want anybody to come and bug you, but you just want to come and have some private alone time with God, you come to my left, your right. Nobody will bother you here. Nobody will invade your space. You can spread out as much as you need to. You can spread out along these steps if you need to. But I would be remiss today if I didn't offer that to you. Those of you at home who are watching me right now, make your couch an altar, your bedside, wherever you're watching, kneel down and say, God, I surrender. I don't have anything else to give but myself. There's no monetary thing I can give you. There's nothing I can give you but me. But I surrender all of me to you. Let me say a word of prayer over you. Father, we love you. The men and women in this place today have come in today, not by chance, but as an opportunity to hear from you. And I pray, God, in this place, in this time, where two or more have gathered in your name, as you have met with us here, you've begun to work on the hearts and the lives of those that have stepped into this room. Remind them that you love them. Remind them of your sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ, that it cost you something so greatly to show them your love, that you were willing to die for them than to spend eternity without them. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love and your mercies, which are new every morning. We ask all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.